They say that in the case of mysterious deaths, the first 48 hours are critical. If investigators don't make a breakthrough in that time, the chances of resolving the case are greatly diminished. But what if you don't make a breakthrough in the first 48 hours or the first 48 days? What if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 years? Welcome to the mysterious case of Fred the Head and one of the UK's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 9 Whatever Happened to Yoji? I want to explain what I've been doing over the last two weeks. It involved disappearing down a rabbit hole that I'm only just emerging from, but one that might just provide another piece of the jigsaw in the case. Stick around to the end for that. It's really complicated and it's really strange. But in this podcast, I'm going to walk you through step by step what I've been up to. It all started with another conversation with Zoe Kun in Australia. There was something in my mind that was bugging me about the first conversation. It was something about fishermen, quite trivial really, but I thought I'd give her a ring and just clear that up. And as I'm learning, Zoe is a talker and has a remarkable memory. So we ended up having another hour-long conversation. I absolutely hate to think what my phone bill is going to be, but it adds more detail to the tale. I also will update you with my contact with Valtroud. I have made contact with Valtroud and I'll take you through that. I also had a further conversation with Pete Marston. You remember, he's the son of Joe Marston who ran the mill. Uh, so that was useful. And he also put me on to a man called Phil Smith. Now, Phil was the accountant at the mill, at Greensmith's Mill, from the early 60s to the early 80s. So he knew everything pretty much that was going on there. I went to meet Phil, actually, and we had a long conversation. Three weeks ago, the mill was the great unknown in this story, but it's not anymore. I feel like I've got my arms round what was going on at the mill. But first, Zoe. Were you able to get in touch with my mum? I still think the Yoji thing, I think that was early 69. That is such, such a good lead. So, by the way, um, so, by the way, is the... Is the talk of the transvestite, the cross-dresser. My dad, I'm, I'm pretty sure dad called him a female impersonator. Yeah. But he also and pointed out to you, didn't he, that you may see him dressed that way, and that wouldn't have been in that club. That would have been in the streets, presumably. So there must have been... Well, I would have thought so. Yeah. And and that that's a, that's a very, very vulnerable person to be in 1969. cultural thing though I mean I remember in England Danny LaRue and people like that were big stars exactly there was a lot of a, a lot of that sort of thing on the television and where my, where my father would, would sort of have a, a reaction like in the 70s 
when mum and dad built their own house and moved out of the shop that, that he had in North Strathfield, um, I still lived there and I had a young gay gentleman as my cleaner because mm-hmm. I was working three jobs at the time and I was a bit busy. So I had this young fellow coming in. My father's attitude towards him once he found out that he was gay was quite restrictive. Interestingly, though, uh, I noted in the last podcast that your your mother frowned on that person as well, and the fact frowned on the fact that your dad even knew him. Because I'm very anxious to try and identify who that person was, and I'm just wondering if your mother might know the name or could put it could put a name to the person that she frowned so much upon. It's a possibility. Unfortunately, she's now ninety, and wow. her memory was never good in the first place. Many yeah. incidents that took place in the in the sixties and seventies were things that that just simply made no impression on her. But it is a possibility that she would, would remember him. Um, I don't think he ever came to our house. I think this was someone that my dad knew some other way through that through maybe that club. Think, to the place think it was anything to do with the club because dad was never out. Like yeah. He worked 12 hours a day. He either worked 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. or 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. So yeah. he had no opportunity really to be going out to clubs. The evenings, he was always there unless he went to... I'm thinking maybe the young man might have been part of the photography club. Um, it was something I was thinking about afterwards. That was about the only thing that my dad went to in Burton. Um, there was some photography club that met at the Swan Hotel. That's interesting. And I'm, I'm thinking that might be where he knew the young man from. But also he was a hairdresser as well, wasn't he? So he may be... Well, he was. So it could have been a cultural thing just simply because the young fellow was probably Eastern European. I, I had an idea that... No. Look, it could have been his name was Laszlo, but I'm not sure. I don't... Uh, I've been trying to put that, that one car trip from town up to Windhill, which was a little bit out of our way because normally you would just drive straight down Newton Road to get yeah. home from town. But he went up at, at the Double Diamond pub up on, up to Windhill along yeah. and then back down Mill Hill Lane. Tiny bit out of our way. Why he was giving someone a lift, I don't remember. I was a child. and What did your dad go and do when he went to Australia? Because I know he was obviously running the mill here, but what, what did he go and do when he went to Australia? Um, he came here and then he um, he got a, a job in a barber's shop in Central Station in Sydney while he was looking around for a business. Then he bought a, a barber's shop in North Strathfield, which is in the inner western suburbs of Sydney. And uh, yeah, he, he bought the business there. I bought the furniture, in fact. Uh, he paid <laughs> $2,000 for the business back in 1970, this was. Wow. And I bought the, fir- the the people were going back to Germany. The the barber and his wife were going back to Germany, so um, okay. the the furniture was also up for sale. And I happened to have four hundred dollars from my savings from various things. I used to sell guinea pig when I, when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, and I saved all my birthday money and odd job money and what have you. And I had two hundred pounds, which translated to four hundred dollars when we came to Australia. Yeah. And I bought the furniture. I, I had a relatively happy childhood. Yeah, and sounds so, like it. Um, and I spent a lot of time alone when I was a child. So I had a lot of time to think about. When you think about events that have taken place, they tend to 
tend to sort of settle in your memory a little bit better than if you just dismiss them and move on to the next thing you're doing. Or he may or may not be the, you know, the, the young man that Dad gave the lift to. He may or may not be relevant. I'm more inclined to think that the, um, the Yoshi, that's, that's a possibility. And the fact that I wasn't told anything about it, because I was a very curious child. I was an only child and I wanted to know everything. So the fact that nobody told me anything about it tells me that it wasn't somebody's pet that someone was looking for. No. Um, it was a person. Do you think he was Hungarian, Yoji? It's possible, yes. I'm inclined to think that Yoji was probably a, a Hungarian person, a young Hungarian person um, with a wife or a girlfriend. Do you know how that no. that name would be spelt in Hungarian? Because. <laughs> It's a weird. It, it's it's not it's not a weird name, but it's it's not a familiar name to me. So is it Y O D J E? Well, Yoshi would probably be short for Yosef. What we do know that is that there is a body, and it's a body that doesn't track to anybody in the UK, and therefore the chances of him being a Eastern European person are very very high, considering the other things take into account. Now the other thing is, um, I don't know for certain, but I think. My father knew people who had been minors. Um, I, I know he, when he first went to England, he went in as a coal miner. They had plenty of barbers and plenty of flour millers. Um, so he asked them what occupation did they need, and they said, we need miners. So Dad said, oh, yes, I can mine, which he actually didn't know how to do. Um, but yeah, he, wanted, he wanted to get into England. And so he told them he could mine. And he ended up apparently being the shift boss because um, he wasn't a silly man. And I guess he probably you know, took out a couple of books or listened to what people said or whatever. And he picked it up very quickly. He's also, he's also extremely adept with his hands and engineering, though, isn't he? Which are very key skills. Yeah, he, he was very well, very good at sort of mechanical things. Um, I, I've got a cupboard here that he built with a secret um, compartment. That you, it, it's a little bit complicated to get into it, but once you're in there, you can't even tell that it's there um, if you don't know it's there. Yeah. So he used to come up with little things like that all the time. Um, so you know, he was always able to make things work. But he, um, but he knew a lot of Welsh miners because he ended up in Wales. What north uh, or south? South Wales, presumably. Uh, around London, no. And that's north then. And I think some of the people he knew were also illegal immigrants. And that was the other thing I was thinking of, I should have probably mentioned to you. I have a suspicion that my dad supported people who weren't legal immigrants, like he, he, he helped them out finding work for them or something like that, finding places for them to live. I don't yeah. know, but I just, I've just got that idea that, that there was something there. Yeah. I've probably overheard quarrels between mum and dad on that topic without okay. understanding what I was listening to at the time but in hindsight I think that dad was sympathetic to people who maybe had entered the country without going through the process that he went through. It, it's possible that what you're looking for is an illegal immigrant and that might be how my father knew him. There might have been, I don't know, like an underground railroad or something like that type of thing. I do feel somewhere in the back of my mind that there is some piece of information that I know that is going to be useful. And I don't know why I think that. Perhaps it's just something because because you said that that might be a possibility. But something tickling, there's some 
my mind and I don't know what it is. Well, you've got my email address. The moment, the moment yeah. that that appears, uh, and patience is is uh, is what's required on these things. But I have a very, very, very vague memory of lights on the island, like lanterns or something like that, and I can't. It, it's only because my bedroom window used to look out over the island. Okay. And I'm just thinking, what if this person was killed while we were still living there? Possibility that your serial killer started in, in Burton with our, our young person, perhaps. He killed prostitutes. Ah. And what I'm thinking is, was the guy who was the female impersonator, was that all he did? Yes, exactly. That's, a, that, that's yes. Yes, I, I, can, I can see that. And so if it wasn't all he did, and he, and he somehow bumped into Hardy and Hardy was clearly a user of prostitutes, and may have been then. And he was perhaps very unhappy if he came across one that turned out to have an outie instead of an innie. If you were going to have some sort of um, illicit meeting with some, um, on the island would be a great place, or in the back of the mill, provided you did it on the weekend when there was nobody around, because somebody would have noticed a stranger, especially a, strange, a, a, a couple of strangers. This is interesting, I need to talk to you about this. He was tied up with baling twine, like polypropylene, loosely wound twine. We believe he was tied up in order to move him rather than tied up as part of a pro, uh, you know, the, of being killed. He was killed and then tied up. Right. That kind of white, kind of gray, light blue polypropylene twine, was that used at the mill? Um, look, if there was such stuff around, I'll, I'll chuck that into the back of my mind too, because if such string was around or twine or whatever, um, it's probably what, what, what my dad would use to tie up the raspberry canes, for example, or something, because he was a very thrifty man. If there, was, if there was twine like that lying around the place, dad would have had some. Thanks for downloading the Mysterious Case of Fred the Head podcast. I really appreciate you doing that. And I hope you're enjoying the journey that we're all on. It definitely feels like we're getting warmer. If you are enjoying it, do me a favour. Please leave a rating on wherever you download the podcast. The higher we get up in the ratings, the more people know about the case. The more people will be able to help us solve it. Anyway, let's get back to the story. So, Valtraud Kun, Zoe's mother. She's alive and well. Age 90, she's living in Dusseldorf. She still has all her faculties. She's even on email. I had sent an email to her when I first made contact with Zoe. Obviously, I wanted to reach out to as many of the Kun family as I possibly could. But to be honest, I only had limited expectations of getting a response from Valtraud. But eventually, I did get a response. Although, in the context of the investigation, it was slightly disappointing. It simply said, Hello Mr Davis, my name is Valtraud Kun. And yes, we did live in Burton, but my husband passed away in Australia in 2001 at the age of nearly 80. We emigrated to Australia in 1969, so I don't think it was my husband that was found there. But yes, he was of Hungarian descent. But I don't think I can help you. Best regards, Valtraud. Now, we kind of knew Frank Kuhn wasn't Fred the Head because I knew he had emigrated. I knew he was there long after that. But maybe 
I wasn't clear enough in my previous email and you know we are dealing with somebody who is answering those emails in their second language but I was not giving up I tried again I emailed her back and I asked her specifically about Yoji and this female impersonator and whether she knew them and whether someone had been looking for them again she replied and I think this is in relation to the Yoji question she said I believe it could relate to a couple we knew in Derby he was called Yosef and his partner was called Illy but I'm sorry I can't help any further all I know is that we used to visit them lots of times and they used to visit us and they were both of Hungarian descent I asked her in a third email if he had ever gone missing and she replied that I do not remember and that's all we've had from Voltraud. So what did the conversations with Pete Marston and Phil Smith from the mill tell me? I'm going to try and summarize those conversations into the next few minutes. I learned three major things. Number one, at the time of the discovery of the body, people at the mill were not interviewed by the police. Phil, and remember, Phil is chief accountant, he's an important man, was not interviewed, and he does not recall anyone else being interviewed at the time. Now, given the proximity of the body to the mill, that seems really, really odd. If you've ever read the book, by the way, which largely is based on Peter Huff's notes, the mill is hardly mentioned either. The mill doesn't feature in the police notes. I'm sure Phil's right. That is a very, very peculiar policing decision. Secondly, Phil remembered Frank Cunn clearly. Good looking man, he said. Stocky, about five foot nine. Intelligent but not particularly popular. He described him as having an air of superiority about him that did not go down well with the rest of the people working there. But he was in charge of the milling process and good at his job. But thirdly, he does remember that Frank's decision to leave was very unexpected, totally out of the blue. He remembers Frank saying, that Joe's going to be shocked when I tell him that I'm leaving. And Frank did work his notice, but that whole process was completely unexpected. I want to talk to you about something very peculiar that I've noticed. Now, I need to say up front that there's a very good chance that this will turn out to be nothing. I may discover something tomorrow that renders this whole idea completely irrelevant. But at the moment, it is intriguing me. Now, talking about this also provides you with an insight into how I go about my investigations. I think people have been interested in the process, and this example is a good example. Now, I should also say that most ideas turn out to have a perfectly rational explanation and this one may well have a perfectly rational explanation now 
My challenge is I have to go through hundreds of similar lines of inquiry until one doesn't have a rational explanation or the rational explanation is what happened to Fred. That's what investigation involves. Hours and hours of going down cul-de-sacs until one, and you only need one, leads you to the truth. And I wouldn't be doing this if I felt that one was never going to. And one of the things I've learned over the last couple of years really is that part of the skill set of an investigator is how enthusiastic you can remain when you encounter dead end after dead end. And this one might just be another dead end, but it might not be. And I hesitate slightly on this because until now, everything I've told you is provably true. I've really tried to ensure that this podcast is really the only place you can be sure everything you hear is true. And now I'm about to speculate on something that I can't prove. But the answer will start with something I can't prove. It also requires some fairly unlikely things to have happened. But we are dealing with the aftermath of a murder. Unlikely things may well have happened. So here goes. Now before we get started I need to make something crystal clear. These are observations not accusations. I can't possibly know at this stage what happened but what I'm about to describe are just some peculiarities that might be worth further investigation. And this is quite complicated so try and stay with me on this. You'll remember that I've spent hours and hours collecting all the data on Hungarian marriages I can find from around this period. I have a record of pretty much every man with a Hungarian name who was married in the UK from the late 1950s to the early 1970s. It's not as many as you might think, it's lots of hundreds rather than lots of thousands. Hungarians are relatively few and far between at that time in the UK. In our earlier conversation, you'll remember that Zoe mentioned that Yoji was a diminutive of Josef, just like Andy would be for Andrew. So obviously, I'm particularly interested in looking through the marriages involving Josefs, starting in Windshill and Burton and Derby, and then further and further afield until I finish the whole of the UK. And in that record, there was Josef Nodge and Ilona Stremi marrying in 1956 in Derby. And I think that's the Josef and Ili that Zoe and Valtraud Kun mentioned. Now, when I find something, a record of a person, such as a marriage, I then go and look for any further evidence of that person, such as whether later children or is there a death certificate? In the case of Josef Nodge, I think there is. So I don't think he's Fred at the moment. Now, by the way, a couple of asides. Firstly, on pronunciation. Nodge is spelt 
N-A-G-Y. In America, they pronounce it Nagy or Nagy, but every Hungarian I've spoken to pronounces that word as Nagy, and that's what I'll stick to. The other complication is the spelling of Jozef is interesting. It can be Jozef as in J-O-Z-S-E-F, that's most likely, or sometimes the S and the Z are switched around. It can be J-O-S-Z-E-F, and they're the most common spellings of Jozef. But to make matters a little bit more complicated, sometimes you see it as J-O-S-E-F or J-O-Z-E-F, but they're less common. Now this idea is all about rare names, very rare names, and coincidences. And I'm about to interweave about three strands into one. So, I'm looking through the Josefs who got married in the 60s. I came across someone called Josef Jenner, C-Z-E-N-N-E-R. Now it's important to note, Jenner is an extremely rare name spelt that way. There are really only three people in the UK during the 1960s with it. I think someone in Bristol, Gloucestershire area, maybe one in Yorkshire, and Josef in Derby. Now, in early 1966, Josef Jenner marries a lady called Anita Blackham, and she becomes Anita Jenner. Now, I don't believe Josef Jenner's marriage to Anita lasted very long, because in late 1969, Anita remarries under the name Anita Jenner, so we can be pretty sure it's her, to a Mr. Brady, again in Derby. So we can presume at this point, 1969, Josef Jenner is unmarried. Now, hold that thought. Back to Frank Kuhn. We know that by early to mid-1969, he has decided to leave, together with his wife Altraud and Zoe, for a new life in Australia, somewhat out of the blue. So, I decided to try and find out what I could about that emigration process. After a lot of searching, I got a break. I found Frank Kuhn's handwritten boarding card from when he arrived in Australia. It's in the National Archives of Australia, believe it or not. I have it and I'll post it on the Facebook page. He describes himself as born on the 16th of February 1922, so he's 47 years of age, a flour miller stroke hairdresser, applying for permanent residency, his intended address being Sydney in New South Wales, and to settle permanently in Australia. He describes himself as married. He travelled by boat, the Castel Felice, from Southampton. Now, Southampton is maybe important. That journey from Southampton took five weeks. He arrived on the 15th of October 1969, so he must have boarded that boat at the start of September. There is, by the way, no record of Valtraud or Zoe's arrival. 
We know though they did arrive, but there's no mention on that boarding pass of anybody else in that family apart from Frank. He calls himself, by the way, on that boarding pass, Ferenc, not Frank. But it's definitely, definitely him. Now, back to Valtraud. We know Valtraud Kruger marries Frank Kuhn in 1956 and soon after have a daughter, Zoe. Valtraud's middle name was Annalise. It's recorded on the marriage certificate. We also know her maiden name was Kruger because maiden names are always recorded on marriage certificates. That's important. So she became Valtraud Annalise Kun. Valtraud A. Kun. Now, Valtraud is not a common name in the UK. It is very rare. I'm sure you'd agree. But someone called Valtraud with the initial A as a middle name is even rarer. Hold that thought. Now, back to Josef, Josef Jenner. Remember, he's now divorced. In early 1970, Josef Jenner marries again. Who does he marry? Well, he marries someone called Valtraud A. Jenner. Now let's just look at that more closely. In fact, the name of the person he married was Valtraut. The D is replaced by a T. So Valtraud becomes Valtraut. The A is unchanged. We don't know what it stands for. It's simply the letter A in the records. The surname that person gives as their maiden name is Jenna. It wasn't Jenna. It could not have been Jenna. There weren't Jennas in the UK. So why did Valtraud A, who married Josef Jenna in early 1970, not put her real maiden name in the books? So this is the coincidence. We have a man called Josef Jenner who lived in Derby. We know that. He then divorces and appears again in Hove near Brighton, marrying someone called Valtraud A. That is a remarkable coincidence. Hove, by the way, is about 30 miles from Southampton. Now, there is no evidence that Josef Jenner and Valtraud A knew each other in Derby. But we do know that there was a Josef Jenner and a Valtraud A both living in the Burton Derby area at the same time in the late 60s. We also know for certain that a Josef Jenner and a Valtraud A knew each other in Hove in early 1970 because they got married. Now, of course, this could be four completely separate independent people. 
they probably are. But if that is the case, it's an incredible coincidence. If it's not the case, and those two people were the same two people, it's incredibly sinister. Now, what does this strange discovery, this strange coincidence mean? Well, it can only mean one of two things. The most likely, by far the most likely, is that the family all travelled together on the Castel Felice in September 1969 and got to Australia and settled there. This was all a strange coincidence and you can forget it all. Everything I've just described for the last 10 minutes has no bearing whatsoever on what happened to Fred the Head. The second, much more unlikely option, but still remains a possibility, is that there was a connection between Frank Kuhn, Faltraud A, and a man called Josef Jenner. One final thing, Josef Jenner does not appear again in any of the records after that date. There's no death certificate for him. There are no later records in relation to children. No records at all. I simply don't know what happened to him and he falls off any of the systems around that time. Now, the good news is this should be very easily provable. I've been trying to reach Zoe again for the last couple of days. She's probably busy with her new house. But I need to speak to Zoe and just establish what she remembers of her journey to Australia, particularly whether they all travel together. That should be easily sortable. So by the time you hear me on the next podcast, which might be two weeks away, I should have an answer to that. But until then, bye-bye. The Mysterious Case of Fred the Head is a GSC Media production. Written, produced and narrated by myself, Ken Davis.